listeners, readers, I'm so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to the Fox page where we dive deep into the very best of books. We end up with a much richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read a little, a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor, editor, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. And for anyone out there who does not happen to be trafficking in rare books, Foxed Page might be a little bit of a mystery. Foxing is just little tan-colored dots that you'll see on pages of very old, beloved books. Head to thefoxpage.com for features like Two Cents, where I predict in about five minutes if you should read a given book, everything from Madame Bovary to Fight Club. You'll find Booked, which are itineraries, suggestions of places you can, of books you can read before heading off to any given destination. Memory Lane, which are short lectures on nostalgic favorites, no pre-reading required. Texts like, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, Frog and Toad. But for today, we're diving into Michelle Zahner's incredible Crying in H Mart. As always, the lecture today will be delivered in three chunks each one about a half an hour long. Recently, I've tending to be going over. I just have so much to say about each one of these texts. But generally, I will try to stick to the half hour. In the first of the three sessions, as always, there will be no spoilers. In the second and third sessions, we may be talking about big plot points and what happens in the end. So I would recommend that you finish the book before listening to parts two and three. In the first session, we're going to talk about why I think you should spend the many hours reading the book. We'll discuss a very quick bio of Michelle's honor in this uh, in this case, and then we'll dive in to the title of the book. We'll sometimes touch on the on the cover art, and then we'll spend some uh, some time looking at the very first paragraph of the text. Then in section two today, uh, we're going to talk in terms of crying in H Mart about memoir and about the ways that Michelle Zahner does such a deft job of really using the aspects of memoir to their, uh, to their fullest. We're gonna talk about structure and we're gonna talk about figurative language. In the third part, we're going to talk about race. Michelle Zahner is half Korean. And we're gonna talk about language. We're gonna talk about Korean language and also about the language of grief. And then finally, we're gonna take a look at the close of the novel. Okay, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, the question always that I will pose at the very beginning of any of these uh, lectures is the idea of why I think you should read this book. So in this case, um, I was with my youngest son and we were in a bookstore and he said, oh, you should read this. Everyone I know is reading it and they love it. Um, he's 21. So uh, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to get a sense of what the kids are up to these days. And honestly, um, I was shocked at the depth and the maturity of Michelle's honor. She's also incredibly cool, which we're going to get to in the bio, which is maybe why some of these youngsters are out there reading it. But as someone whose mom died a year and a half ago, it was really interesting, uh, the prospect of reading a book about the death of a mother. And believe me, Michelle's honor, uh, you know, she, she delivered something that is well beyond her years and something that was both consoling and really, really interesting. It's a hugely popular book. Those of you who have been, um, you know, witness to my seminars for a long time know that I tend to not love a bestseller. Well, this guy spent 60 weeks on the bestseller list. And my, my reservations where bestsellers are concerned 
is that often the prose is not up to up to the caliber that I like to um, that I like to dig into in these seminars. So it was incredibly refreshing to find that this is in fact a very popular bestseller, huge bestseller. Uh, but it is also something that really delivers in terms of prose. Uh, I also really liked the idea of reading memoir. So my my reading, you know, my, my sort of my preference is almost always fiction for better or for worse. And in in the, the many years, it's been seven years now of delivering seminars, either in the bookstore and then now recording them, uh, I have tended to focus mostly on fiction. So it's really nice to dig into memoir, which really um, plays by its own rules, which we are going to take a look at. It also, again, was sort of good and bad, the idea of me reading a story about the death of someone's mother. Um, and again, I found it incredibly, uh, you know, the death was very central in lots of ways, but the book was incredibly entertaining and interesting and well done aside from the topic. Uh, and I'm going to say that I did choose this in spite of the cover art and the title. So I, I saw it often on bookshelf, um, bookshelves and front tables of bookstores. And for whatever reason, um, actually, I'm going to tell you why. There's some very good reasons. I I don't love uh I don't love the title. So I think crying is great. I think it's good to be sort of upfront with this idea of of what we're going to find in the uh in the memoir. She is in fact very vulnerable and very honest throughout. So it's good that she leads with crying. For some reason, crying in H Mart. I always went straight to Walmart, which is like I've, I've only been in a Walmart once in my life. But for some reason, in my mind, it was always sort of like, oh, this is going to be some equivalent of Walmart. In fact, it's literally the opposite of a Walmart. But I did not know that. Um, and I stand by the idea that the title may be a little bit limiting. I think, um, you know, if I were Michelle Zahner's editor, I might have combed through uh, the memoir to find something that I thought was a little bit more evocative and a little bit more indicative of what we were going to find between the covers. I also didn't, for some reason, this font just does not speak to me. The red and black doesn't really speak to me. I looked up red and black uh, in, in the Korean culture. Uh, in part of my sleuthing that I always like to do before I give a lecture. And um, it will not shock you to know that red is, um, you know, it's a sign of passion. It's a sign of love and devotion, which is the same as in American culture. It is the sign also, though, of anger and of murderousness. That was one of the uh, adjectives that they used. It also, interestingly, blue is a color associated with women and red is a color associated with men. I think I'm probably reading way too much into the red and black, um, you know, color scheme here. But you know, that's how that's how we do it in these seminars as we we go deep into things. But I, I the one thing I do like is I like this idea of these noodles as being connected. I think and and the chopsticks obviously. I like what that says. But I don't even really like the way it's executed. So I hate to just like really just shit on the cover here, but it's just not, it's not really speaking to me. So I picked it up in spite of the title and the cover. And honestly, it was just, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Okay. So in terms of biography, we're going to talk very quickly about Michelle Zahner. Her middle name, which you probably already know, is her mother's name, Chong Mi. 
And um, at some point when she was, you know, really coming across some of the, the first inklings of, of racism and exclusion uh, during her school days in Oregon, she chopped out that middle name, thought it was chic. I think that was one of the words that she, well, she told her mother and other people that she thought it was chic not to have a middle name, but she also confesses as you would in the very best of memoirs, that cutting out that middle name made it so that Michelle's honor uh, doesn't have the same ethnic weight as it would with, uh, with her mother's middle name. Of course, it's very significant that she cut her mother, mother's name out of sort of out of her identity and out of her legacy, which would have become very painful um, in her, you know, when she's 25 and, and her mother died. She was born in Seoul, South Korea, uh, and moved to Oregon and then went to Bryn Mawr for college, which sounded like it was a very good experience for her, landed in Philadelphia and New York City both. So th those are things that you find out from the, uh, from the novel. And you do hear quite a bit about her, um, about her uh, band, Japanese Breakfast, and the band that she was in before that. But honestly, when I started pulling together the uh, images that I'm going to share at the end of, uh, of the lecture, if you happen to be watching on the YouTube channel, if not, you can always go there just to check out the images. Uh, but I just really had not had much appreciation for the, for the like success and the magnitude of Japanese breakfast. They're also so cool. Those of you who are watching the YouTube channel, I'm wearing um, a little top that I feel like is very like a Michelle Zahner sort of top. In fact, this is going to be another seminar that's going to have uh, some costume changes. I'm going to get zanier and zanier. Um, I'm sort of channeling what Michelle Zahner looks like when she is on stage. Uh, just an incredibly stylish and also um, very accomplished musician. She's a guitar player and a singer um, and really has had a lot of success with her with her music. I was a little confused about what shoegaze pop was, but it's it's an uh, an indie type of pop that has to do uh, with sounding sort of ethereal, sort of celestial kind of music. Um, but the thing, the, the sort of bottom line about why I would want you to read this book is not um, despite the title and cover and not despite the fact that Michelle's honor is so cool. It's simply that the prose and the story, what she actually has to say are incredibly moving. So we are going to dive in to the text. So one thing that I will say for those of you who have found the Fox page because you want to learn to be a better reader, first I'm going to say that I'm a little, um, I'm a little, I always push against this idea of becoming a better reader. I don't feel like anyone needs to be a better reader. And yet I also understand the idea of wanting to, to have a fuller and richer and deeper understanding of everything that you read. So my best piece of advice is the most simple, which is that the only thing you need to do is just pay attention is this read with a little more attention. Part of that is looking, for example, at the significance of a title. And part of it is maybe paying a little bit of attention to all of the frontest matter, which is basically all of the stuff that comes before the text gets going. So we have, we have our, our title and then we have a bunch of blurbs, which are really, um, you know, sort of what you would expect from something that was on the New York Times bestseller list for 60 weeks. But then we have um, this this nice sort of uh, introduction, and usually you would have a biography like this at the end of the book. But it's interesting that they have put this here because I think 
they were really wanting to lean a little bit into Michelle Zahner's uh, persona as a uh, as a pop star. Not only is she a pop star, but she also has some really incredible writing um, writing credits that we will get to in a minute. And uh, you know, well, she's been published in the New Yorker and Harper's Bazaar, and Glamour is where she got her start, which we're about to get into. Um, but 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 it's it's a it's telling that they have this kind of quick bio at the beginning. Again, it seems a little superfluous as we're heading into a memoir. And yet I think it's to sort of give us a sense of this young woman's accomplishments so, so, so that we're a little bit more uh, appreciative maybe of, of how much she is sharing her vulnerability. Okay, then of course we have yet another title page. We move on. This was so frustrating to me. So I've opened here to the page of these two young girls in Korea. I have to assume that the that the it's a it's her mother and one of her sisters. And I did some of my very best sleuthing both online and through this book. I looked at all of this information on the back about the cover art and the creator of the cover, uh, and could not find who these are. There were three sisters in the family, so I, I just was like Michelle throw me a bone here, like, tell me who these people are. It doesn't have to be right underneath here. And for a minute, I thought maybe it was Michelle and her mom, but that does not make any sense. Um, so I don't know who these two are. There's an allusion late, uh, later to uh, the, the um, a, a pair of Korean pop stars that the sisters, so the mother's generation was really interested in, and they dressed in matching dresses and, and the, the, the Michelle's honors mom and her sister used to sing along to them. So I think, you know, you could try to argue that that's who these people are, uh, but I think that's a bit of a stretch. I think mostly this is just a picture of the two of them. I was really hoping for a little more information there. Okay, and then uh, importantly, we don't have one of those little disclaimers about, uh, you know, how all of the uh, details of the book are from the author's imagination and that any coincidence in real life is um, is coincidence because it is a memoir. So it's very American. Uh, I, I touch on this often. We have this real need in the United States to, to figure out exactly which section our books need to go into, whether it's memoir and everything needs to be true, whether it's fiction. Um, thank God we've moved away from like the days of like the gay and lesbian literature or like the black literature. So um, at least we've we've pulled away from some of our labels, but we seem really hung up on this idea of fiction and nonfiction. So I understand this idea of, um, you know, a true story and things being based on a true story. And, and, and it is on some level really, um, it changes the valence of the whole thing if what you are being told is a true story. And yet with memoir, I mean, we all know how fallible memory is. And certainly we've gotten to a point where we understand that, you know, the more and more stories that we have told as a family, that the story is the thing that becomes the reality. So I think memory is very fallible. So my sense here is that, you know, yes, this is a memoir and it is true. And yet we really have to, you know, have in mind the fact that these are details that are unverifiable. And as such, I have no problem with people sort of, um, I mean, not lying. It's not that she's lying, but I have no problem with her sort of uh, filling in details maybe that are not exactly what they should be, uh, which again is very sort of un-American. So 
We don't have any kind of uh, detractor here. We don't have any kind of disclaimer, but I, and I love this. So we have um, the dedication of the book, which often to me, it just leads to a lot of sleuthing. In this case, um, I had a pretty good hunch that it would be dedicated to her mother. And in fact, I put um, the, these Korean characters, well, I put the word mother into Google Translate and up popped these Korean characters. So it's the only word that is in Korean characters in the novel. And it's very sweet that she has, and, and it's the word for mom, it's Oma. Um, Oma is how they said it. I really was trying to get the tonality right because I think Korean is a tonal language, so Oma is what they said. Um, but I but I was I was very touched by the fact that she leaves it in the Korean. There's no translation for us. And we just have this sense that that is who she's dedicating it to, which of course, very logical and, and very touching. Okay, then she has a table of contents. Right at this minute, I am reading um, uh, how to write an autobiographical novel by Alexander Chi. And it is an example of a table of contents that is so incredibly telling and so incredibly well done that I'm afraid Michelle's honors here is uh, paling in comparison. So I like the idea of a table of contents. I like the idea of really helping the reader focus on the idea that this is um, like anyone's life. These are, you know, it's not one long fluid story. It is in fact um, fragmented. There are different scenes. She's pulling specific things. You obviously can't include someone's entire life. So, and, and many of these are, are kind of standalone sections or sort of, um, it, you know, she'll have a small arc that will allow a chapter to stand almost sort of on its own. And Crying in H Mart was a an essay that was published. So there is um, this this sense of of uh, of really like an interesting and kind of it, it gives us an illustration of the fact that we are heading into um, you know an essayistic sort of memoir. And yet um, I just I didn't find the the titles all that compelling. I am known and notorious for skipping titles, chapter titles, as I am reading through. Um, sometimes I don't take my own advice about paying attention. But I will say that, honestly, you could like practically skip these chapter titles. And I'm not sure that you would be missing a lot. So here we, though, have Crying in H Mart. And we're going to dive in to this first paragraph. So those of you, again, who have um, listened to a lecture before, you'll know that I put a lot of stock in the first sentence and the first couple of sentences, the first paragraph. This is not a particularly challenging text to read. Um, so I think this is slightly less important, but anytime we are reading anything, really focusing on that first, that first paragraph, that first couple of paragraphs is a way to sort of give yourself a key, like a sort of a map as to where you should direct your focus, as to what sort of writing we're going to be dealing with, as to what the themes might be. I'm not someone who focuses uh, all that much on themes, but it will really tell us, um, especially again in a different and a difficult text, it will tell us essentially how to read the book. So we're going to dive on in and um, pay special attention here to the first two, first one and, you know, 30% or sorry, 90% of the second. <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking in percentages. No, we're looking at the first two, 100% of the first two uh, paragraphs. Okay, 
So this is page three, if, if you happen to have your text in front of you. Ever since my mom died, I cry in H Mart. So I like this as a, um, as a first sentence because it's really very clear. The writing is, is it's uh, bold. It's getting right to the point. There's a certain amount of telling that she does. You know, there's that old saw um, that they teach you in MFA programs about, you know, you should tell and not show. Um, it, wow, that is totally the opposite. You should be showing and not telling. And I think that Michelle Zahner actually has a perfect balance of showing and telling. And in the beginning, what we're having here is, is her telling. So ever since my mom died, I cry in H Mart. We have a nice echo of uh, the, the, the top of the uh, title of the book, but we also have this real vulnerability. She's, she's marking time with the death of her mother, which I think is very significant. Even though she plays with time quite a bit, we're going to talk about that in the second section in the structure of the novel. But she's she's sort of the beginning of not only the novel, I, I'm going to keep doing that, but um, the beginning of the memoir, it sort of time starts with the death of her mother um, and, and it is linked with this crying in H Mart. H Mart is a supermarket chain that specializes in Asian food. The H stands for Ha An Taeum, a Korean phrase that roughly translates to one arm full of groceries. So this idea of H Mart is taking on a bit more significance. And I, I, I very much appreciated this as someone who was not sold on the title because this idea of one arm full of groceries is significant because most of us have two arms. And so if you only have the one arm full of something, there is this sense of, of loss. There's a sense of emptiness of the other arm. So you have this idea of um, like only one arm is full of something because Michelle Zahner is missing her mother. There's a bit of a, of a stretch there, a little bit of a, a, um, a leap that I'm making. But I do think it's it's not, you know, both your arms full. It's not that you are carrying so much groceries. It's just the one arm full of, of groceries. H Mart is where parachute kids flock to find the brand of instant noodles that reminds them of home. So one of the things that we always expect from a memoir and that um, in this case we are very much satisfied by is the idea of learning something. We want to learn something. And Ideally, you're going to learn something that sort of changes your outlook on the world, but you're also going to learn, you know, new terms of art, new phrases that are specific to this person, but also ones that that really help you understand an entire uh, concept. And Parachute Kids was exactly that. So Parachute Kids, I did not know. I had never heard that term. I did not know what that was. Um, and I had a sense of what it was. And in fact, I was correct. I went to Google and looked it up. So parachute kids are, are, are uh, students from Asia whose parents send them in uh, to be educated in the United States. It, the, the article that I read was in the New York Times. It was about high schools. It was about these, these um, parents who were trying to make sure that their kids were going to get into good colleges in the United States. And the best way to do that was sending them to boarding high schools. But it's such a good um, metaphor because you have this idea of parachute kids. I mean, a parachute is, is first of all, it's dangerous. It's a matter of life and death. And it's something that you do. I mean, 
unless you're like skydiving for fun, it is something that you do in dire situations. If you have to parachute into a place that, you know, this mostly I think of like wartime. So you have this real sense of like stakes being very high. And if you're parachuting in as a kid, you know, you have this sense of, of really being very solitary. So you have these kids who are coming in, these parachute kids, um, and kids, there's something about just the word kid that is very sort of juvenile and satisfying um, in a way that underscores how vulnerable these parachute kids would be, how alone. Um, and then the brand of instant noodles that reminds them of home. So one of the, the descriptions that I like the best of all of the food, confession, I'm not a big foodie. I mean, oh, I hate to even admit that because it seems like a shortcoming because I, I, it seems like I don't know, like lacking a very important element of like sensuality or something. But um, I, I loved because I can picture them. I loved all of the the descriptions of the cartoons and the and the instant rice. I mean, the instant noodles. Um, th there's a sense of of packaging that that I can sort of relate to in a way that I might not have been able to relate to some of the actual food that she is describing. So. There's this sense of, of these parachute kids, this thing that is very kind of, um, you know, dangerous and exotic, this mode of arrival. And yet instant noodles are something that are so um, accessible and universal and, 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 and comforting. Also, of course, an example of like not a home cooked meal. So it's a very multivalent uh, symbol that she's giving us here. And we're only, you know, on like the third sentence of, of the memoir. It's where Korean families buy rice cakes to make taeokguk. You're going to have to pardon my Korean. Not good. That is not a language that I, that I have. The beef and rice cake soup that brings in the new year. So if we're really parsing this paragraph, which we are, it's really sad for her. I mean, she could have chosen any, any, anything in this H Mart. And what she's choosing is something that is about renewal and, and, and new beginnings and the new year. And, and I think if you're rereading this and you're thinking closely and you're paying attention to what you're reading, you, you have this kind of eerie sense that her mother is not going to experience another new year. Um, and, and that when the families, these Korean families are ringing in the new year, she, you know, their family is going to be really down an important person. So it's, it's a, um, it seems like a kind of a throwaway description and yet it really is very, uh, it's very evocative of the fact that her family has been totally fractured by loss. It's the only place where you can find a giant vat of peeled garlic because it's the only place that truly understands how much garlic you'll need for the kind of food your people eat. So I love what's happening here is um, she's slipping into the second person. So um, it's interesting, um, there are novels that are written entirely in the second person, and frankly, they're mostly really annoying. So the first person is just I, the second person is you or we, and the third person is he or she. So in this case, um, she's saying you can find a vat of garlic because it's the only, uh, you know, the only place that understands how much your people need garlic for their cooking. So this really cool thing is happening on a very, you know, subconscious, subliminal level where we are aligning with her because we are placed by virtue of her saying you, we are placed into the aisles of this H Mart and we are, um, you know, we even get to call these people our people.
because she's saying your people. So there's very subtle, um, very subtle use of, of, of grammar here that is allowing us to sort of align ourselves and understand. H-Mart is freedom from the single aisle ethnic section in regular grocery stores. They don't prop Goya beans next to the bottles of Sriracha here. I didn't know where Sriracha came from because it's spicy. I just assumed that it was one of the many, like, it was like, uh, you know, not Tia Maria. I think that's like an alcohol. It wasn't like Cristal or um, uh, I can't even think of any. There's like that very famous one. Anyway, we have a thousand different, very, very hot uh, Mexican inspired sauces. And I just figured that Sriracha was one of them. It is from Vietnam. So there you go. I learned yet another fact from Michelle's honor. Um, but this is a much more important thing than where Sriracha comes from is that, that she's already discussing um, the racism and the, and the sort of um, the immigrant experience that both she and her mother have. And, and in her case, it's, it's the, the many, many difficulties of, of being mixed race because she is neither Korean nor is she entirely American, uh, at least in the eyes of her uh, you know, classmates in Oregon. So this right here in H Mart, there's this sort of luxury of not being, um, you know, shoehorned in a tiny section uh, and being sort of misunderstood and lumped in with a lot of other immigrants. There is, in fact, this sense of, of not having emigrated at all. OK, um, so this there, there's a little tricky thing here where she says it's freedom from the ethnic aisle. Instead, you'll likely find me. So I was like, wait, instead, like, it seems like something was kind of edited out there, but we all know what she means. Instead, you'll likely find me crying by the Banchan refrigerators, remembering the taste of my mom's soy sauce eggs and cold radish soup, or in the freezer section, holding a stack of dumpling skins, thinking of all the hours that mom and I spent at the kitchen table folding minced pork and chives into the thin dough. So one quick thing I want to point out there is she mentions my mom twice, once in the very beginning in that very first phrase. And then again, um, when she's talking about my mom's soy, uh, soy sauce eggs. But then there is a, a sort of slippage from my mom, which is obviously lowercase, to mom and I. And in that case, it's a capital M. And I don't know if you have friends who, when they refer to their parents, they'll be like, oh, mom doesn't really, you know, go in for diapers. That's literally the age that I am, is everyone's talking about how their parents are incontinent. But they'll be like, oh, mom doesn't go in for diapers. And then there are other people that would say like my mom, or there are other people who would say Susan. Um, so, so there's an intimacy that honestly, sometimes I find a tiny bit uncomfortable and I'm very comfortable with intimacy. But there's, there's a sense of, um, of intimacy when someone feels like they can call the person, they can call mom, you know, it's like, it's, it's as if you know the person well enough. It's like you're talking to a sibling. Um, so I love the fact that she slips into that mom and I because it really does give her, um, I mean, as, as the reader, it gives you a sense of intimacy like, you know, she knows you well enough to be referring to her mother as mom. Uh, okay, sobbing near the dry goods, asking myself, am I even Korean anymore if there's no one left to call and ask which brand of seaweed we used to buy? Okay, so she's ending that very, well, it's the second paragraph, but it sort of reads like the first paragraph. She's ending it with this gigantic question of, 
of, of what it means to not have that familial tie and what it means for her culturally. And it, it gets to this larger question of like, who is she to begin with? So um, she's really kicking us off with a very, very large question. And, and this is part of the sort of um, like very straightforward nature of a lot of the prose that I think is really laudable. So thank you very much for joining me in section one of, uh, of our discussion of this incredible memoir, Crying in H Mart. Um, we're gonna uh, ha hope that you join me for second for the second and the third sections of uh, of this discussion. You can see me with my costume change, uh, and you can also learn a lot more about why I think the the prose is exceptional and why the story is so moving. So thanks so much for listening. Happy reading.